1: Good morning from the nation's capital. Welcome to the show, Just the News AM. I'm your host, Nicholas Balcey, filling in for Carrie Sheffield. We have an excellent lineup of guests coming on today who will cover a wide range of topics in the news, but let's go through the top headlines this morning on justthenews.com. It has been a tumultuous time in the U.S. Congress for both parties, especially for the Republicans, as they have had to deal with the fallout of the violence at the U.S. Capitol that took place on January 6th. Ten Republican House members voted, along with the entire contingent of Democrats, to impeach President Trump, claiming he incited violence, among them House GOP Conference Chairwoman Liz Cheney. There are calls for her resignation, and there were calls immediately after... The riot took place because she supported the impeachment of President Trump. Even Republicans were calling for the the removal of Cheney from her leadership position. Challengers were announced that they would run against her in the primary. Despite all this, Cheney will retain her post because the House Republican Conference voted to keep her in the chair position. She will remain House Republican Conference chair. The House GOP voted decisively to keep her in her role, and they supported Cheney 145 to 61. As one member is voted on to keep her role in Congress, another is set to be voted on to lose hers. Despite a statement of condemnation, Leader McCarthy decided not to strip Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. Greene faces a full House vote today, that might remove her from her committee assignments. The two top committees that she's serving on are budget and education and labor. Former acting commissioner of the US Customs of Border Protection, Mark Morgan, is warning President Biden's executive orders on immigration are creating what he calls a catastrophic border crisis after the COVID-19 pandemic passes. Morgan predicts that the number of illegal immigrants entering the country could spike to 3,500 per day under President Biden. He's urging states to take the lead on immigration law enforcement and pass their own legislation to be able to address the issue. Arizona Republican Representative Andy Biggs, who's the co-chair of the Congressional Border Security Caucus, told just the news on Wednesday that the new fence that now surrounds the U.S. Capitol demonstrates that the U.S. should continue the construction of its fence on the southern border. The seven-foot fence around the Capitol was added after the Capitol riot on January 6th, and it has not come down yet. There have not been any violent incidents at the Capitol since the fence was set up. Big says that the same people who tell him the fences don't work on the border want to turn the Capitol into, quote, a military compound. U.S. Customs and Border Protection on Monday apprehended a group of 11 Iranians who unlawfully entered the United States. The 11 Iranian nationals included five women and six men, according to CBP. U.S. sector agents have apprehended 14 Iranians during the fiscal year 2021. During an interview with Just the News on Wednesday, Oklahoma Republican Representative Mark Wayne Mullen said President Biden and his administration have opened themselves up to a legal challenge after President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline with an executive order. Mullen compared Biden's decision to the actions of the Venezuelan or Chinese governments. Mullen argued the decision was purely political and said a lawsuit might be filed over the situation. Here's a clip from the interview with Congressman Mullins.
2: Well, we put out uh, HR 575, which is a cross-border infrastructure act, which would bring security uh, and surety to to people wanting to invest in the infrastructure with Canada or with uh, with Mexico. The issue that you have right now is what Biden did was unprecedented. It, he 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 canceled a presidential permit uh, that, the, that the president before him approved and the president before that, Obama, had had issued the study and, and moved forward with the permitting process. So you had two, uh, basically two presidencies that had looked at the Keystone Pipeline, uh, they took a deep dive in it, one started it, one, one approved it, and then when the third one came in, he canceled it for no reason. Uh, there was no uh, review of the permitting process, uh, there was uh, there was no oversight into it. It was purely political, in my opinion. A lawsuit can be filed in this case uh, just for the uh, uh, for the commerce clause. When there's billions of dollars of private money and public money that has been invested in Canada and inside the United States, and for a permit to do it for political purposes. We don't do that inside the United States. That's what happens in Venezuela. That's what happens in China. That's what happens in Russia. That's that's what happens in third world countries, not inside the United States. The reason why people do business inside the United States is because of the assurity. When they invest their money and if they manage it right, uh, they, they are guaranteed a return. When there's a need for it. In this case, it was politically motivated, and and there's a lot of people that's lost their investment here uh, for no reason, no reason whatsoever, other than just pure bowing down to the environment, to the environmental
1: community. That was Congressman Mullen on the Keystone XL pipeline project that was canceled by executive order uh, by President Biden. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky says schools can reopen safely regardless of whether teachers are vaccinated for COVID-19. Some teachers unions are demanding that classroom instruction continue online until teachers receive the coronavirus vaccine. Walensky says vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for the safe reopening of schools. Now, we also have a segment from Eleanor Holmes Norton. It's a soundbite. Uh, it sets up the segment that we'll have later with D.C. shadow Senator Paul Strauss, who's going to talk about the push for D.C. statehood. We'll take a look at that clip now of Eleanor Holmes Norton.
3: Here's the 51st state flag, and I defy you to tell the difference,
4: but it'll be a big difference when the district is the 51st state in point of fact.
1: Is D.C. statehood coming? How likely is it to become a reality? We're going to speak with D.C. Shadow Senator Paul Strauss about that very issue right after the break.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's Amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: All right, we're back. Our next guest is Mark Krikorian. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark has testified before Congress on immigration policy, and he's a frequent guest on national radio and TV programs. Before we get to Mark, we have a segment we want to play, a sound bite from Biden about immigration. Today I'm going
5: to sign a few executive orders um, uh, to strengthen the immigration system, building on uh, the executive actions I took on day one to protect dreamers and uh, to end the Muslim ban and to better manage our borders.
1: And that's what these uh, three different uh, executive orders are about. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. I want to start by going through some of Biden's executive orders on immigration. I wanted to know what you thought about the move to revoke Trump's public charge rule, which prevented immigrants from getting permanent resident status or green cards if they're likely to need taxpayer funded benefits. Do you think it's a good move to revoke that rule for Biden? All right, well, we have another soundbite from Biden. We're having some issues with Mark's audio. Uh, Let's play the other soundbite from Biden. I want to make it clear. There's a lot of talk with good reason
5: about the number of executive orders that I've signed. I'm not making new law. I'm eliminating bad policy. Um, What I'm doing is taking on the issues that 99% of them, that the president, the last president of the United States, issued executive orders I thought were very counterproductive to our security, counterproductive to who we are as a country, particularly in uh, in, uh, in the year of immigration. This is about uh, how America is safer, stronger, more prosperous when we have a fair, orderly and uh, humane
1: legal immigration system. All right, we're waiting to get Mark on the line for the segment. About But right now, we want to go through some of the executive orders. Like I mentioned, uh, President Biden is changing this public charge rule that President Trump uh, had in place, which prevented immigrants from getting permanent resident status or green cards if they were likely to need taxpayer-funded benefits. Now, uh, Trump required immigrants who were... Uh, illegal who tried to enter the country illegally and were apprehended at the border, he wanted to make those undocumented immigrants go to Mexico for their asylum court hearings and that rule was actually enforced and it changed previous uh, previous precedent where you had undocumented immigrants uh, going in the u s for their asylum hearings after they were apprehended at the border and Then it was changed. So they would have to go back into Mexico to do it. Biden is reversing that policy. And once we get Mark back on the line, I wanted to ask him what he thought about the policy, if he thinks it's a good move to reverse it, uh, which is what Biden wants to do. And he's taken other executive actions when it came to reuniting families, which was another major issue during the Trump administration. And so that policy has been reversed as well. And so from what I'm hearing, uh, these executive actions are just the first of many that we could see coming down the pike from President Biden to reverse a lot of the immigration policies that were designed under Trump to take on undocumented uh, immigration and illegal entries, which the Trump administration often compared to the situation with security, with national security, they would say, "Look, this is a national security risk because you've got not just illegal entry of uh, individuals, you've got drug trafficking, you've got human trafficking, you have all kinds of issues that are related to border security, but the Biden administration is clearly taking a different approach. And I think you might see, because there are no additional physical barriers expected to be built under the uh, Biden administration, you might see another fight between Republicans and Democrats on whether there should be more miles of border wall uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border. Right now, I think a lot of people don't realize There are actually only 450 miles of the border that have existing uh, barriers. So you have a 2,000-mile southern border, but only 452 of those miles have some sort of physical barrier. Some of those barriers are not even barriers that could stop a person from illegally entering. They could be a barrier just to stop a vehicle. So not all the barriers are the same along those 452 miles. A lot of people may not realize that. So the Republicans have been saying for a long time, look, we need to get different barriers. We need to get barriers that not only prevent vehicles from coming over, but prevent, you know, people from coming uh, undetected into the United States because we don't know who they are. We don't know their background. So that's the Republican point. And then the Democrats have been more about, we, got, we need enough border agents on the border and less about having the uh, more physical barriers along those miles. So you see Biden saying, we're going to stop. There's no additional physical barriers that we can, we can go forth with. So we're going to see what happens on that And if we can't get Mark back due to these audio issues, we're going to have to get him back another day because Mark is a real expert on these issues at the Center for Immigration Studies. They go through, I mean, every detail of what these policies that are put in place could do uh, to the nation's immigration system. Now, I think you're going to see a debate coming up after the stimulus package debate. Is complete. You got the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that's being debated right now in Congress between the the House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats. We don't know what's going to happen with that. It looks like it might pass. If that happens and it passes, I think the next issue you might see Biden take on is comprehensive immigration reform. And that includes a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Uh, He wants—he was originally talking about an eight-year path to citizenship. You hear some Democrats say it should be a five-year path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants currently living in the United States. We will see how far the Democrats want to go. Uh, The Republicans will have a little more leverage in that debate, because in order to get uh, legislation through, you need 60 votes. The legislative filibuster Uh, is still in place. You need 60 votes to get some large bill like immigration reform that's not directly related to the budget. You would need that to get it through the Senate. Republicans will have a little more leverage, so there could be a real fight over immigration policy coming up real soon. After the break, we are going to speak with Paul Strauss, the shadow senator from D.C., and he's going to talk about D.C. statehood when we return
0: Your happy price, price line.
1: All right, I want to bring in my next guest, Washington, D.C. Shadow Senator Paul Strauss. He was the first, he was first elected as Shadow Senator in 1997, and he's been advocating for D.C. statehood for a very long time. Senator Strauss, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it.
4: It's my pleasure. Good to be here with you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So, Senator Strauss, I wanted to start by, can you explain to our viewers uh, what is a shadow senator? What's the position entail? Our viewers may not be familiar with the shadow senator position. Sure.
4: Well, shadow senator is a nickname for my position, which is legally called the United States Senator for the District of Columbia. D.C. voters go to the polls and on the ballot they vote for a candidate running for an office that is called United States Senator. And the election works just like any other Senate election. I run in my party primary. Uh, I ran against a Republican and some people from smaller parties. And at the end of the day, voters uh, elect a candidate who they feel would best represent them to the United States Senate. Now, while the election works the same way as a regular Senate seat, After the election, things get different. When I go to the Senate to advocate for my constituents, I'm not allowed to vote on their behalf. I'm not allowed to participate to the same extent that voting senators get to. And so it's really unfair, and it amounts to the equivalent of of, uh, taxation without representation because D.C. residents pay full federal taxes, but we don't have voting rights in the Congress.
1: Now, some Democrats have said that D.C. statehood could actually pass in the Senate if there wasn't a legislative filibuster. Is that the only thing standing in the way of statehood right now in your mind, or are there other roadblocks?
4: Well, right now we have our statehood bill introduced. It is a companion bill to H.R. 51 in the House. This one is S. 51, and we have 40 original co-sponsors. And filibuster or not, any bill in the Senate needs 51 votes to pass. The filibuster is just a procedural issue about whether debate ends and it proceeds to a vote. So, obviously, if you don't get past the filibuster, you don't get a vote. But in order to get the vote, you need 51 votes. Do we have 51 votes today? I can't with confidence say that we do. We know we've got at least 40, and I think that we're going to pick up a few more. But... Uh, the the goal would be to get every member of the Democratic caucus on, and then ideally a Republican or two, and, and that's what it would take to pass it. Uh, the filibuster obviously is a, a broad issue nationally that we're having an important conversation about. But let's remember, the Founding Fathers weighed in on certain issues that deserved a majority vote and certain issues that had a supermajority vote. The admittance of new states specifically was carved out as something that needed only a majority vote. So when they set the threshold for removing a president from office after impeachment, they made that two thirds. When they set the threshold for amending the constitution and approving an amendment, they made that two thirds. But when they set the threshold for how to admit a new state, they made that a simple majority. So I think there's a compelling constitutional argument that at least when it comes to areas where the framers weighed in themselves, We should not be tampering with the number of votes needed to make uh, to pass this legislation.
1: Well, now you've heard Republicans argue that the move to make D.C. a state is actually not constitutional. They say that the founders actually intended to set up D.C. as the nation's capital, not as a state. Uh, How do you respond to that? Well, I've
4: heard Republicans argue that there are lasers of a particular religion in space that are pointing at forest fires. I've heard Republicans say a whole bunch of crazy things. It's hard to really take stock in that, like so many things that some Republicans argue about when they say that D.C. statehood is unconstitutional. They're just wrong. Uh, It's perfectly constitutional. The election wasn't stolen. There are no secret lasers in space that are pointing at forest fires in California. So unfortunately, I have a lot of Republican friends, but when you hear, when you start a sentence with Republicans say this, uh, you can't really give it any credibility these days. The party is not what it used to be.
1: Well, let me ask you this about what the, like I said, they argue that the founders envision it as a, as a city, not as a state. They also talk about the 23rd amendment, uh, that the 23rd amendment goes far enough uh, what you, what's your response to that? I mean, you may face some criticism along those lines from Democrats uh, since we're not at, you know, we don't have statehood yet. So what would be your response to that? Well,
4: the Founding Fathers set up a seat of government that was under the exclusive control of Congress. D.C. statehood's legislation maintains that. What it does is it shrinks the seat of government to the part of the capital area that actually is the seat of government. And if you want to get a sense of what that is, we all got a pretty good look at where the borders would be at the last inauguration when the seat of government had to be fenced off. But residential Washington, D.C., where people live, work, uh, where my house is, where my dentist's office is, where the schools are, that was what would become admitted as the 51st state. So Congress gets their federal district. And ironically, Really, tragically, one of the reasons why we were always told that D.C. shouldn't be a state was that back in the 1780s, a group of an angry mob stormed the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, and the Pennsylvania state militia wouldn't give aid and protect the members of Congress, and Congress had to flee, and the legislative proceedings were disrupted. And so somehow not having D.C. be a state was supposed to protect against that happening. Well, guess what? we saw on January 6th that that logic didn't really work. Not having the Congress in a state actually made Congress less secure and less safe because of the convoluted barriers to us mobilizing our own D.C. National Guard. We had to send the Metropolitan Police Department in to rescue Congress. So D.C.'s lack of statehood makes Congress less safe, not more secure. And it's just another reason why Americans realize we have to end this now because it's gone on too long, it's too unfair, it doesn't serve the interests of the people of Washington, but more importantly, the nation is not well served by this system with D.C. not participating equally in our national government.
1: Well, if you had to make a prediction, do you think statehood can pass in the, in the current session of Congress? Do you see it happening?
4: I hope so. There are a lot of people who are elevating some partisan interests over the principled ones. But I think at the end of the day, the American people want a government that works. And D.C.'s lack of statehood is part of what's not working in our government. They want real solutions. And uh, I do think uh, it should pass. I hope it will pass. I've spent the better part of my life fighting for this issue of simple fairness. Uh, And I think now is our time. There's too many important issues. Coronavirus relief, for example. We got one-third of the funds because we're a territory and not a state. Uh, How stupid is that? Do you think the virus knows that we're a territory and not a state and only makes us one third as sick or infects one third of the people that it does in the states? Uh, This lack of attention to science and basic common sense has got this country in a terrible mess. And D.C. stated is one of the ways we can fix it.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Senator Strauss. We really appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll see what happens with statehood. We'll have to see where Biden ends up on it. I know he's been supportive of it in the past. uh, So we'll see if Biden comes out in support of it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So after the break, we've got Mark Goldwine coming up. He's from the Committee for Responsible Budget. Let's see what happens. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. We have a great interview coming up for you. A great guest. But first, I want to play a soundbite from the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell.
2: Republicans will be ready and waiting with a host of amendments to improve the rushed procedural step that's being jammed through. We'll be getting senators on the record about whether taxpayers should fund checks for illegal immigrants whether Democrats should raise taxes on small businesses in the midst of this historic crisis, and whether generous federal funding should pour into school districts where the unions refuse to let schools open. And this is just a small taste.
1: All right, so we're here with Mark Goldwine. He's the senior vice president and the senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget going through the $4.5 trillion federal budget and analyzing it is not an easy task, let alone going through these stimulus bills that Congress keeps passing during the pandemic. Mark is a busy guy. So Mark, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Mark, I wanna start with the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that's coming out. Uh, We haven't seen the legislative language yet. But I wanna ask you, is, that, is it a responsible move to spend that much money right now when it comes to budgeting? I know there's a pandemic obviously going on, but is it right to have another really large package after the 900 billion that was passed in December?
3: Well, look, so we've already allocated about $4 trillion um, towards fighting the crisis and the economic crisis. I think there is a pretty strong case that, that we need some more, particularly when unemployment benefits expire in mid to late March. Um, and given the needs of states, but $1.9 trillion is a, a lot higher than at least what we estimate is necessary. What do you guys think uh, your organization is the right amount? Yeah, so the Congressional Budget Office has tried to estimate what's the output gap over the next three years. Basically, what's the difference between how much the economy will produce and how much it could be producing if there weren't a pandemic? And they think it's about $750 billion dollars. So, um, you know, you don't need a math degree to know that $1.9 trillion should cover that several times over.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, do you think we might see a step-by-step approach? Do you think they might actually do a package about that size? Or do you, do you see it heading because of reconciliation toward a definite huge $1.9 trillion deal?
3: It does look like it's headed for the bigger bill. Um, but I still think there's opportunity to negotiate this bill um, to be more targeted in a number of ways either to spend the $1.9 trillion better um, or to reduce its overall cost.
1: Okay. Well, let me ask you this, though. I think when it comes to the budget, people wonder if the government will ever balance the budget, or are we going to see deficits uh, forever, pretty much? Uh, What do you think? Are we going to continue to run deficits? Will they ever be able to balance the budget after the pandemic's over?
3: I I suspect we're going to see deficits forever, but it matters how big. Small deficits we can handle. We're a very strong country with a strong economy. Large deficits will ultimately overtake us. And if the debt keeps growing faster than the economy, we're going to be in big trouble over the long run.
1: You say big trouble. Could you explain to people who hear these large numbers, right, and don't really understand how it affects their life uh, now or in the future, in the short term or long term, Uh, explain to our viewers what's the trouble? What what could happen in their own lives because of these massive deficits in debt?
3: So I think the most likely scenario is sort of the frog in the boiling water. Um, If you put a frog in cold water and start to boil it, the frog won't even notice. And I think that's the most likely scenario here. Um, Debt chips away at growth. It chips away at growth because people buy bonds instead of investing in the private sector. And so it's little by little. You may not notice it year over year, but the Congressional Budget Office thinks that you know, our current trajectory is going to slow our growth 20 basis points a year. That's 2% after 10 years. It's almost 5% after 20 years. Um, After 30 years, it really starts to matter. It means that all of our incomes are going to be lower than they otherwise would have been, and we're not going to understand why.
1: Well, the debt now is supposed to exceed the size of the entire economy way faster than predicted before the pandemic. It's it's supposed to be 20 21 by the end of this year cb the cbo is saying so what do you think
3: that's going to lead to if when, once we cross that milestone so debt actually briefly breached the size of the economy last year it's coming down now because of some cash management and then it's going to go back up um, there's nothing magic about 100 percent of gdp other than it's sort of a shameful stat we've only had debt larger than the economy one time in our entire history and it was right after world war ii And we had a plan to quickly get it back under control by running balanced budgets, by growing the economy. We don't have that plan now. What we have is an aging population, rising healthcare costs, and commitments that we're unwilling to pay for.
1: Yeah, real quick, we have about a minute and a half. You say commitments that we're not willing to pay
3: for. Uh, Could you explain just what those commitments are real quick? Um, Look, the three largest federal government programs are Social Security, Medicare, and Defense. There doesn't seem to be an interest in cutting any of them, And there is a big interest in cutting taxes. And so we have this situation where people want Mexico's level of taxes, Canada's level of spending, and don't want to worry, and Greece's level of borrowing. We can't afford that.
1: Well, we'll see what happens if both sides can come together, at least after the pandemic, and try to figure out ways to make some reductions. We'll see what happens. And and we're going to have you back again. Mark, we really appreciate your insight. And uh, it's not easy going through the... The federal budget and uh, figuring out ways to make reductions. So we'll look out for what your group is putting out in the future uh, for possible uh, reductions to the budget for a more responsible budget like your group stands for. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for having me. And next, we're going to have Greg Swenson. And right now, we're going to a break, but we're going to have a great interview with Greg coming up right after this.
0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: All right, next on the show, we have Greg Swenson, a partner at Brig McAdam. He has 25 years of capital markets experience on Wall Street. And he spent over a decade at Lehman Brothers. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here, Nicholas. So I understand you're joining us from Chicago, but you're normally based in London. Uh, What brings you to Chicago? What's it like in London during the pandemic?
6: Yeah, like a lot of American expats in the UK, uh, everyone's trying to get out of the country and get back to the US or, or elsewhere. Because the lockdowns in the UK are are pretty catastrophic for the economy, but also you know challenging just for for the day-to-day lifestyles. And so I think you know coming back to the states was just a kind of a break for me, you know, do some business uh, to a certain degree, um, you know, catch up being back in my old hometown, which is Chicago. But um, you know the 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 lockdowns in the UK continue and you know as i mentioned during the break they're they're managing the crisis much like a blue state governor here in the US in spite of being a conservative uh, so-called conservative government so the lockdowns are still pretty severe you know they do have challenges with, with the spread of the virus and the, and also the the threats on the healthcare system you know the national health service the nhs so um, so they're still really locked down and and i think even the blue states here like illinois have have started to relax much more aggressively
1: Well, now, in the U.S., there's been a lot of job loss and small businesses closing during the pandemic in large numbers, especially in major cities. The Democrats are talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour. They're figuring out a way to possibly tie that to the large stimulus bill they want. Uh, What would be the economic impact of doing a $15 per hour minimum wage?
6: Nicholas it's a great question and the answer is is a simple one it would be economically destructive it would be destructive to jobs it would be destructive to ironically to wage growth and destructive to to prosperity and so and and especially at the very time where first time job seekers are vulnerable because businesses have been closed down small businesses are going to have trouble bouncing back the last time it's just like any other tax the last time you should put a new tax in is when there's some sensitivity around the recovery. And granted, the economy has had somewhat of a V-shaped recovery. There, there was growth in the fourth quarter, so you know we're not in a recession. But in terms of jobs and job creation, it's economically destructive, and and it's a it's a huge mistake. And I hope they don't do it.
1: Well, Biden wants to give out the $1,400 stimulus check, so the minimum wage hike may not go through, but it looks like the $1,400 checks, he's sticking to that number. And right now, there's no income requirement in his plan. You've got Republican senators who want income requirements tied to the check. So if you're making over, you know, 250000 you would get less money or no money at all if there were some income requirements. Do you think that example, somebody making over 250000 should get a stimulus check at all? Or do you, does it really not matter? What do you think?
6: Of course not. I mean, it, it's a bad idea for a number of reasons. One is, as Mark, your earlier guest, was saying, it just adds to the deficit. And, and remember, it's not stimulus. It doesn't stimulate anything. You give someone $1,000 to buy consumer products, that doesn't stimulate growth. Or they just save it, and, and you can see the huge saving rate um, you know, increases in the la- you know, since the pandemic started. So the first round of checks, for the most part, went into debt service or retirement and savings, and so you do have some pent-up demand. Maybe we'll see some, some aggressive spending um, after the lockdowns end. But more checks is just a really bad idea, and it's not stimulus. Now, if it's relief for those people on the bottom end of the economic spe- spectrum, or people are still, still out of work because of these lockdowns, okay, then, then just call it relief, and I think there's some merit to that. But surely the, the, this mass you know mailing of, or, or distribution of uh, $1,400 checks It's a it's a huge mistake. And ultimately, it's destructive economically because it doesn't stimulate stimulate anything. But yet it still taxes the the government, the the government balance sheet.
1: Well, a two part question on that would be, is one point nine trillion in stimulus the right size of stimulus right now during the pandemic? And if not, where are the areas you think they need to have targeted stimulus if it's not the one point nine trillion dollar number.
6: Absolutely. And you know, the one point nine is, is obscene. I don't know why they arbitrarily picked that number, but this was just basically a way for the Democrat wish list to be implemented in in the program that's designed or at least the excuse is COVID relief. And if it was just COVID relief, that's fine. Now the, the December bill had 42 billion in vaccine distribution i think it's uh, north of 100 billion in in this particular pr- proposal and that's fine if it's really going to vaccine distribution because that's the best thing for the economy that's the you know reopening is the best stimulus there is but putting all these other democratic wish lists in into the bill uh, that have nothing to do with covid relief is is obscene and so so look if it's targeted relief for those who need it most without discouraging them from j- seeking jobs You know, in other words, if you make the the federal unemployment benefit too high and you keep it for too long like they did in 2009, it just stops job creation and it prevents employers who are having a rough enough time as it is. It prevents them from being able to hire. And and that just stalls the recovery even more. So. So, look, I don't think I I surely think that the number should be dramatically lower than than one trillion. And it's just amazing, Nicholas, that we're even talking about trillions and, and hundreds of billions like we are lately without any regard for, for paying it back or, or the deficits.
1: Yeah, I remember when a large stimulus was the $700 billion that they did during the bank right. bailout. And now yeah. we're at huge, huge numbers, uh, talking about $2 trillion again after the CARES it's Act amazing. and the $900 billion from before. Well, Greg, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Yep.
0: After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
1: Welcome back to the show, Just the News AM. We're off to a great start this morning. A lot of big uh, news that's been coming out. We went over the headlines in the beginning. Uh, We had some great guests. We went over the debt and deficit. Looking back on today's show, we really covered a lot of ground, like President Biden's executive orders on immigration policy, the push for Washington DC statehood from the DC shadow senator, the federal budget, the record size of the national debt and the deficit, the coronavirus stimulus package, and the impact of the pandemic on the economy. At Just the News, we're keeping a close eye on the budget reconciliation process for the large-scale stimulus plan that Biden wants to pass as it moves its way through Congress. Today, the Senate is scheduled to continue debate on that COVID-19 relief budget resolution, and some votes are expected. They're going to continue the budget reconciliation process that was green-lighted this week. And as they continue that, we will be following all of the action at justthenews.com So check the website for updates throughout the rest of the week. I'll be back tomorrow with another great lineup. Tune in for the show at 9 a.m. when we interview Texas Republican Congressman Michael Burgess. I'm Nicholas Palacy. I want to thank you all for watching and have a great day.